An object remains in motion or at rest unless it's acted upon by an external force. But there's a difference. There's a difference between whether objects at rest or if it's in motion. This difference is even more clear when the object is really heavy. And also, it's really clear if we look at a time before the invention of the wheel. Hi, it's John. You're listening to the Access Potential Podcast. See, when pyramids were built in Egypt around 2500 BC, the wheel still wasn't even invented. So for a long time, we've asked the question and we wondered how did they move these massive stones across the desert to build these huge structures? Well, it turns out the physicists at the University of Amsterdam investigated the forces that you need to pull a huge object on a giant sled over desert sand. And they discovered something really interesting. They found that if you were to dampen the sand, wet the sand, just in front of the sled as it was pulled along the sand, it reduced the friction. So it reduced this resistant force that made it so hard to pull the object along. So when we pull any object across any surface, there's a resistant force. If you think about sliding something along a piece of glass, a glass coffee table, or along an ice skating rink, this can be really easy. And if you think about pulling a really heavy object along, say, carpet or rough concrete, it can be harder. This total force that we feel when we're doing this is related to the mass of the object and then obviously the nature of the surfaces, so what kinds of surfaces we're using. And this different surface is what gives us the coefficient of friction, or in this case, coefficient of dynamic friction. So when the sand's a bit wetter, it becomes a lot easier to drag the sled. Literally throwing some water onto the sand in front of the sled, therefore it's reducing this coefficient of sliding friction. And this means it's a lot easier to pull the sled. The belief is that there could be up to 170 people working to haul these stones or statues on a sled along the desert. And then just one person, or maybe two, are standing on the front of the sled and they have the job of pouring water onto the sand to make the sand wet, therefore easier to slide. At this point, though, there's two things that we can stop to consider. The first one is that the object in this case is just really, really heavy. So any change in this coefficient of friction is going to make a massive difference, and it can really impact the number of people or the size of the workforce that we need to slide these huge stones along. And the second thing to consider is that so far, we've been talking about the sled once it's moving. In China, traditionally, gymnasts are known to start training really, really young. We're talking three to five years old. And the routines are really intense. If you have a look around for this online, you'll see imagery Photos of them, pictures where there's this pain on their face. They're being put through torturous routines at a super young age. Mobility and strength work, it's intense. And then they continue this routine right through their youth until they reach competition age. 
and then eventually retire, and they don't stop this whole time. In Australia, there's a 15-year-old named Hayden Cox, and he decided that he wanted to disrupt the surfboard industry and create a global brand. He then spent the next 20 years to build Hayden-shaped surfboards. In 2006, I was really lucky at the time, I got to meet Hayden and spend some time with him and get some input on a design project that I was doing where I was trying to redesign surfboard fins. At the time, Hayden was super deep in the design phase of what was called FiberFlex technology. Basically, he was reconfiguring or redesigning how a surfboard was built. Eventually, FiberFlex became what's called FutureFlex. And then this is how Hayden ultimately disrupted the entire surfboard manufacturing industry, even today. So over his journey, Hayden faced heaps of difficulties, financial, all sorts of troubles. But he kept going. He kept showing up every single day. The black petrel is a seabird. So the black petrel and other seabirds are perhaps some of the best flyers on Earth. They're that good that they literally can sleep while they're in flight. What's the process? When the black petrels are just a couple of weeks old, they climb their way up a cliff to a ledge or a rock. Locally, this is known as launch rock. As a seabird, you can imagine their climbing is really awkward. But eventually, even still, they make it up and then they jump. They jump off the rock and sometimes they fly and then sometimes they don't. And if they make it, they literally don't stop flying. They continue to fly to the Galapagos and they fly for years without stopping. They can sleep in flight. And if they don't make it on this jump, then they literally awkwardly climb their way back up to launch rock and then they start again. So why the gymnast, a leading surfboard shape and a black petrel? Well, here's the thing. We can see, and of course we already know, that the long-term excellence that we're looking for in a lot of cases is achieved as a rule, through this consistent action. Of course, there's a couple of lucky cases where this doesn't happen and success comes more quickly. But in generally, the consensus is that it's going to take us a long time. And we're okay with this intellectually. When I worked with a lot of people in their strength and movement journey in the industry, at the time, 8 and 12-week programs were really common. But I found... Over time, that was really only helpful as soon as we could start to talk in time frames such as 18 months and then go from there, even looking longer. We also see that Hayden, the seabird and the gymnast, began their journey only once and then they never stopped. And so the beginning of these endeavors was a really difficult time. Literally, there was physical pain for the gymnast and the petrol and then there's sacrifices, huge opportunity costs in other areas. But this initial hurdle of beginning, despite no real ability to know if it's the right thing to do, is really important. All right, so let's go back to the Egyptians. So firstly, although the wheel wasn't invented, they still figured out that adding water to the sand was going to make it an easier job. Sure, it would have been nicer to have some wheels or something to roll it along, but having the moist or the wet sand was better than having dry sand. Made the work a little bit easier. And they would have found, for sure, the same thing as Hayden and the others. 
that the coefficient of dynamic friction, the resistant force that they faced after they started moving the stones is far less than the force that it takes to get going in the first place or to overcome what's called static friction. So for the birds, I mean, they learn to fly with instinct rather than intelligence and emotional labor. However, they experience the same thing. The coefficient of dynamic friction, so the effort that they need to fly is way less than the effort they need to take off. Once they're in flight, they can go to sleep. All right, so if it's clear that the upfront effort for us to start a new endeavor is the greatest, if actually instigating the change that we want to make is the hard part, if it's clear that once we get going, it gets easier over time, then how come more of us haven't begun? How come a lot of us just stare at this chasm, this sort of gap of discomfort that stands in the way of us starting? And not just why do we do this, but when we do find ourselves here, what do we do and how do we cross it consistently? So I'm going to go more into my thoughts about change in a different episode, but for now, maybe one thing to consider is perhaps that change could be paradoxical. So this means we might really enjoy this idea of change, this idea of starting something new, especially when we call it something like leveling up or growth. Any of these terms that we're hearing all the time that we've decided culturally are an upgrade. However, when we flip it over, when we consider change in the context of chaos or disorder, our car not starting, a restructure at work, or even just having to wake up a little bit earlier to get into the gym, we can actually cringe at the thought of it. So on one hand, we'd love some change, yes please, but then... On the other hand, we want things to stay exactly as they are, but maybe just a little bit more relaxed. If we look at the black petrel, who started off with a series of crashes off of Launch Rock, or if we look at Hayden, who's had to destroy literally hundreds of boards in his career because they didn't meet standard and they couldn't be sold in retail, we can reconcile this. We, we know that there's some discomfort that's going to be part of this growth. We can see this in the journey of others, and we remember it in our own journey when we overcame hurdles. We have this confidence that the journey itself can help us to become the person that we need to be to overcome these hurdles. And so we know there's going to be difficulty, but we know that the dynamic friction, the difficulties we face if we can just get started, although significant, are going to be easier to overcome than getting started in the first place. So everything here leads us back to one really simple step, one place. So we arrive at our own launch rock. How do we internally create this kind of pressure that we need for us to overcome this fear of starting? Maybe there's a process, maybe there's a repeatable process that we can use to overcome the static friction. One movement, if you will, to reduce this distraction, reduce these familiar patterns, move through these patterns that have run their way with us in the past, and we can use this to get ourselves closer to actually taking off and actually get ourselves to take off. 
All right. So firstly, of course, it's the conscious decision-making. So it's choosing powerfully. And we've got this realization that we actually want to engage. We actually want to start. Not just show up and participate, not just log in, but really start with a capital S. Really begin the journey. All right. So secondly, we've got three areas we can consciously set up. Since we know that this is the toughest part of the whole journey. The first one, we're going to call it urgency. In 1995, change expert Dr. Carter Carter wrote a book, Leading Change, and in it, he had eight steps for creating change in an organization. And the very first step for this was creating urgency. Not surprisingly, this is an essential attribute for us as well, as individuals. So for an individual, the kernel of urgency, the start of urgency can come really quickly and all of a sudden and it can come from this realization that there's not enough time. So we talk about this every day. Time flies. Look at the weeks flying by. It's already March. This sort of stuff's really common. These are common sayings. And then when we juxtapose this knowing against what we see, this really long, really consistent effort of Hayden, the black petrol, the gymnasts from China, we see that if we have decided to change and we really want this, we literally wanted to have started yesterday. We need to act now. This brings us to number two, and this is called necessity. So necessity is a second launch pad for starting with a capital S, the second step that we need and can we can create to really get going. So how necessary is it that we create this change that we're looking at? How necessary is it we start this project, that we launch this product, that we engage in this program? So we can go two ways with this. And I talk about this frequently with people and it's called the AB case. So if I continue on path A, knowing that my current set of habits and patterns and actions that I've run in the past have positioned me exactly where I am today, what will happen if I continue on path A? And then let's contrast that. What would happen if I actually understand and implement the steps for change? What would it look like if I started to implement the steps and shift towards path B? And then finally, and most importantly, potentially, we can quantify it. So this is a really helpful tool. So it's the question on a one to 10 scale, how necessary is it for me to create this change? How necessary is it for me to get going? I like to see this come back at least an eight or higher. If it's below an eight, usually it just means that it's not important for us and our past habits and patterns are going to override it. So we're not going to create the pressure or the tension that we need to actually break through and see the change that we're looking to create. One way we can use to get the necessity higher up on the scale is to consider who else is around me. So who else would be impacted positively by this change? Who kind of needs me to make this change? And then the other way, which I really like, is to bring skin in the game, to raise the stakes 
And we do this by sharing the decision with others or sharing the intention with others. And even more powerfully, we can create or we can add or layer in what's called a value exchange. And this is basically by engaging with others in a, in a monetary fashion. So paying for the accountability to keep us going, paying or investing in a sustained and stable peer pressure or system that helps to keep us on track. So for me, for example, once I pay, let's say for a race entry, for a triathlon or an event, once I invest and I sign the lease for a new business, once I pay the deposit or engage with a coach, my output jumps up in a nonlinear fashion. So I think it was in late 2008, I entered an Ironman triathlon, which was going to take place in New Zealand, 2009, in March. And I really couldn't even swim that well. I'd gotten through a few longer swims, but nothing very competently, and I couldn't really string a lot of laps together. I'd always surf, but I couldn't swim long distance. But then by March 2009, I could finish the entire swim in under an hour. So the question is, would I have been able to get my swimming to this point without raising the stakes, without publicly announcing that I want to do this race and that I had entered? It's possible, but it's not likely. All right, so number three, and this is really powerful. This is the team. This is your cohort, your crew, your squad, your culture, the collective that you're surrounding yourself with or you're creating. And see, the thing is, this isn't a question of motivation, education, or inspiration. It's really simple. It's a question of narrative. It's a question of the story that we're telling ourselves in our head, the little voice inside of our head. Because this voice or the narrative isn't fixed, it's flexible. So we find ourselves at a network that is a strong narrative and a really helpful narrative around movement, around health, around playfulness, or maybe it's around creating products and services that can positively impact the culture. Well, then you realize that if you come into this group, into this culture, if you come and join us, this is how we roll and this is where we're going. That if you join us, not only are we going to show you how we do what we do, but we're going to introduce you to the language that we're using, the way we're approaching the problems, the tools and strategies we use to overcome fear and get out of our own way. Creating this cohort, this team that is aligned with where we want to go, that surrounds us, is really helping us to recreate our conditioning. It's really helping us to positively influence our narrative. It's not just that the people in the group can mechanically help us or show us how to get where we want, but it's also that now there's a tension for us to show up. So there's this positive peer pressure. So normally when we might walk away, we're tired, disheartened, we see a bit of a challenge, decide not to show up. Now we can't. We're literally part of a group, part of a collective, and this is a collective of people who show up even when it gets tough. All right, so once we have this sled moving in the Egyptian desert, we can add water in front of it to make it easier. 
But really the biggest thing to understand is that in either event, water or no water, the friction that we face once we're on the path, once it's moving, must be less than the one we face when we're staring at the changes that we need to make to get started at the very beginning. Getting the sled going, starting the journey, creating the initial change, the initial engagement is the hardest part of the whole thing. See, for us in 2019 as humans, this change, it really just has to happen internally. It's in our belief systems. It's in how we think about ourselves and how we act. It's really in our ability to cultivate what I call personal power. The personal power that we need to cross this line of discomfort and the personal power that we need to fly. So simply starting, starting with this capital S, really engaging, really getting going is the first and it's the only task that we need to worry about until we find ourselves on the court, until we find ourselves in this place of action. When we see this, when we understand this, we can enroll some tools. We can create some upfront urgency. We can ramp up this necessity. And then we can find our team. We can find our collective, our tribe. Or we can create one. So this episode was really about starting. And on that note, we've arrived at the end. I hope you enjoyed this one. If you have any questions about this episode or any episode in the future, send them in to me on an email, john at johntmarsh.com. And I'll look to address them in one of the following episodes. That's it for today. If you enjoyed this, I hope you'll share it, send along to someone who's looking to get started in something big, who's holding back. Help them create urgency. Help them create necessity. Join their team, join their tribe. Help them create the cohort that they need, the positive peer pressure that they need. If you enjoyed this, I'll see you the same time, same place next week. Now that we're rolling, it's a lot easier to continue. Thank you.